Hi, I'm Ian Abernethy and you're listening to Tim Smith on the Kung Fu Podcast. If you're a listener to this podcast, it's safe to say that you have an interest in the modern day practice of the traditional martial arts. Therefore, you may enjoy my own podcast, the imaginatively titled Ian Abernethy Podcast. You can find it in all the usual places and at ianabernethy.com. That's I-A-I-N-A-B-E-R-N-E-T-H-Y dot com. Exploring the culture, the adventure, and the impact of martial arts. With me, your host, T.W. Smith. Welcome. You are in the audience of some of the finest and sharpest martial artists in the world. People that put in a great deal of sweat and a great deal of care into honing their craft. This episode is about your ability to execute a violent act at a critical moment. When it is time for the hammer to hit the gunpowder. This episode spawned from a rash of violent acts that I had become aware of, and then, like gas to a fire, I had this conversation with a philosophical martial artist that wanted to argue that violence only begets more violence. It was similar to this request that another martial artist will ask online. Are there any effective non-violent martial arts? I'm a peace-minded individual who wants to pursue violence as a last resort, out of compassion for my attacker. I'm wondering if there is a form of effective real-world, non-lethal, and non-violent martial arts that caters to such a goal. Someone responds for this question, <laughs> Any grappling art, wrestling, judo, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, sambo, will teach you to control someone without hurting them. You can get enough skill that you can take it, the average person to the ground and hold them there with minimal damage to yourself. I believe that the first gap that we're having here is this interpretation of the word violence. When someone is cursing at you, flipping you off, threatening you, perhaps even slapping you out of anger, this is not the level of violence that we're discussing when I mean violent in this episode. In those situations, you're going to respond, of course, But remember that the jackass is actually communicating with you. That's a huge difference. For you to interpret violence, I suggest going back to Kung Fu Podcast number 108 through 110. The ranking of violence in three dimensions. How many slaps equal one punch? And how one headbutt is equivalent to pouring acid on someone, and that's true in four countries and at least three levels of justice. Those episodes were inspired by a friend of the program, Ian Abernathy, and really complements this episode very well. The situations that we're discussing here is when things go dark really fast, or the darkness finds you really fast. Tim Larkin refers to this as asocial. There is no communication between you and the person that were your enemy. We are at ground zero. Let's take a real-world police example. Police officer sitting there in his car, and someone comes up behind him and bumps him in the rear while he's sitting still. He's like, what the? And as he gets out, what he sees is someone rushing at him with something in their hand. In literally less than a second, his life is in danger. Holding a knife, 
he's barely able to respond. Check it out. As he steps out to investigate the accident, it's about to happen. He has no idea of the danger he faces. Here he comes. suspect is armed with a knife and keeps charging the officer. It appears he wants to kill him. The officer is finally able to get his bearings. He shoots the suspect in the chest. Shots fired! Shots fired! Thomas and Griggs, one has been shot! The officer is obviously shaken. Oh! The suspect is later pronounced dead. This is the damage after... Just like it was for that officer, he acted, saved himself, and was emotional at, through the process. That's part of it. It is the mental and emotional components that are so tough to practice. To learn to embrace is what I call in myself, Dungeon Tim, the dark side that I really don't want to go to, but I have access to. The place that in yourself is, it is time to break the glass now. The Taoists refer to it as a warrior spirit, and there's no negotiation with the tiger that's hunting you. If you get to a place where you believe that you can rise to the occasion if that happens and you don't need to practice, you're going to be in serious trouble. My suggestion for the so-called best techniques in any of these examples is to practice techniques, particularly body and foot patterns, that resonate with you. I suggest techniques that works within your belief system, because if it doesn't, you're going to hesitate. You must absolutely believe that you're going to act swiftly and justly, which means you must believe in your constitution. Things like, you can do this without any need of extra gear. That works for you on any sort of terrain. That would include wet grass, wet concrete. How about a stairway? Does you know your footwork and what you train help you pick up your feet and move the way you're supposed to if you're on stairs? If you require mat all the time to train your violence and to train how your body's going to move, I sure hope the gods are smiling upon you if this moment hits. When we have to act in this sort of realm, you have got to keep your feet. You can't be going down to your knees and you can't be rolling around. You've got to keep your feet. You must also be able to execute them with something in your hand. So if you have these techniques that you're working and you just happen to be holding your cell phone, does your techniques allow you and encourage you to use any weapon that you may have. There's a great video Tim Larkin shows where a guy's being attacked and he's literally trying to push the enemy away as he's taking his right hand and sliding his phone into his pocket rather than using it as a weapon to strike the guy. Also, as part of your constitution, you can execute this technique with extreme intensity that you're going to avoid the fatal flaw of standing still and of course, this could have been number one, but it's just as easy to have it as a reminder. Please abide by the laws. I hate for you to be the one to go to jail when they ask the one that created the problem. So the golden rule, movement creates space and opportunity. The don't be there defense is a great start. The don't be there strategy is second after what I call the blowfish defense. Look like something that shouldn't be trifled with, like the angry kitten, for example. 
When it comes to the necessary practice and know the laws, I'm in North Carolina. When is violence the justifiable response in the United States is guided by a state-by-state basis. Ryan Stowe at Stowe Law Firm posted in late 2018 regarding when violence is justified, wrote, In North Carolina, as in many other states, self-defense laws guides the right of North Carolinians to protect themselves against attacks. The Stand Your Ground laws in North Carolina came to effect in 2011. Before then, you had a duty as a North Carolinian to first retreat in the face of an attack or assault, if it was possible. Otherwise, you would have ended up with a criminal charge on your hand for not running away from the attack. The Stand Your Ground law takes into account the length to which one can go to defend themselves or another person against violent attacks. However, the law operates within reason to protect your rights to self-defense in North Carolina. The use of reasonable force in North Carolina is considered justifiable if you need to use force to protect yourself or someone else against an imminent attack. Now, that's within reason. You have to believe that the force is necessary to stop an imminent attack that can result in great bodily injury or death. So someone just saying, well, I'm going to smack you, isn't necessarily great bodily injury. So you can't just haul off and throw out the throat punch. However, he continues by saying, when you are in your home, your workplace, or your vehicle, and the attacker upon whom the reasonable defense force was used had unlawfully intruded or attempted to forcefully and unlawfully enter into any of the places I just mentioned, this is sometimes referred to as the castle doctrine, for these places are regarded as one's castle, which you are entitled to protect. Essentially, you are only allowed to stand your ground with deadly force against an attack within reason. You cannot use violence against someone who has identified themselves as a law enforcement agent, a bail bonds person, or I also read a landlord. The use of deadly force is only permissible where one is in the imminent danger of death or serious injury. For instance... Appropriate self-defense answers a strike with a strike rather than a gunshot for a punch. Similarly, you can't take out a knife and stab someone just because they have slapped you. You cannot use excessive force or deadly force during a mild or moderate attack or fight. As part of this idea of using violence as a tool, I thought I'd go back and look at some of the moral and philosophical teachings of the past. So, for example, what did Confucius say about violence? Well, if you didn't know, he wasn't against it. Confucius lived in a time of feudal disintegration. He shared the fundamental Taoist teaching that natural harmony based on the healthy blend of yin and yang, and that was the ideal to be cultivated. However, Confucius's personal experience of political unrest made this harmonious Shangri-La viewpoint not very practical. Soldiers compromised a high-ranking social class. In fact, the superior person was originally described as a member of the military class and educated included training in warfare. One of the things that Confucius would often argue for, which I really like, he insisted that no one should be allowed to carry a weapon without seven years of education in agriculture, ethics, and military tactics. 
He did not disapprove of military campaigns in principle, but he did regard them as a solution of the last resort. What about the Buddhist viewpoint on violence? And this one gets a little trickier, right? Because you have the modern, more accepted viewpoint or perceptions of what Buddhism is. Then you have a lot of historical references just as well. Because there are many references that Buddhist teaching speaks against and avoids violence at any measure. However, there are also many historical and modern references to justify violence. Violence that responds as an answer to pain and to suffering. At Wiley Online Library, associated with the work titled, Is Violence Justified in Theravana Buddhism?, wrote, According to Buddhist teaching, a viable solution to conflict is less likely through the use of violent means. This is because of the belief in Buddhist doctrine that violence breeds hatred. Thus, victory achieved through violence is not a permanent solution to any conflict. Now, philosophically, I may not argue against that, but realistically, my utilitarian side comes out, and also one thing that I learned about the Buddhist teaching a long time ago, that part of the premise of all of Buddhism is understanding that there is no permanence of anything. There's actual big practices set up that you make yourself understand nothing is permanent. No mountain is the same as it was a thousand years ago. There is no such thing as permanent. So why bring it up in an argument? We're discussing a moment in time. We're in context. Evil has always and will continue to exist as long as man exists. We want to make sure, as good people, that it stays contained. In a work written by Christina Gilberg titled Warriors of Buddhism, and basically looking at violence from a Tibetan Buddhist perspective, appeared to be written in the early 2000s, since the latest reference in the article was in 2000, Christina wrote that there are also people close to the Dalai Lama who speak in favor of using violence when it's necessary. One of them is the former representative of the Dalai Lama and the director of the Tibetan Foundation in London. He says that since China has already given Tibet a death sentence, the question is whether or not the Tibetan nation should die fast or slowly. Because of this, he thinks the Tibetans should fight for total independence and that violence is justifiable for the cause. This is a concept in Tibetan Buddhism that goes along with compassion, that if you know something is suffering, it is dying, to be compassionate for it, you try to put it out of its misery or you try to eliminate its suffering. If you know something has to be done, do it swiftly. Then he makes a statement that could resonate with everyone. No colonial power has ever yielded on its own initiative without being unequivocally invited to go by the oppressed people themselves. So basically, if you want them to go after they've invaded your place, you will have to remove them. They're not going to leave on their own. This global scale understanding about violence is also brought down to the individual level by the Dalai Lama's younger brother, Tenzin who could really consider using violence to make the Chinese leave Tibet. The situation is like this, he says. Someone is broken into another person's house without being invited. That undesirable person should leave. That would solve the problem. We have to try to bring some pressure to bear upon them. And often the only pressure that they're going to recognize is violence. 
So let's take a quick look at the Taoist references to violence and perhaps their perspective of it. Almost all modern quotes skew everything toward nonviolence, individually and collectively, as if they're going to sit there and watch their children being taken away for a philosophical reason. As an excellent read, I would suggest David Kopel's work at the Liberty Law University in 2007, Self-Defense in Asian Religions. There's a story titled, The Master of the Hidden Storehouse. It is credited to one of Lao Tzu's disciples, Kung Sung Tzu. And though the work was known about, it laid obscured until the 8th century of the Tang Dynasty, where it was honored as part of a revival of Taoist studies. The emperor of the time liked it so much he called it the scripture of open awareness. The final chapter of this book explained that warfare, or I'm going to substitute violence, was necessary to rescue oppressed people. They said that a powerful and good militia would attract so much support from liberated people that enemy armies would flee without battle. Warfare cannot be dispensed with any more than water or fire. Properly used, it produces good fortune. Improperly used, it produces calamity. When violence is truly just, it is used to eliminate brutal rulers and rescue those in misery. In general, it is desirable to look very powerful, with many troops, for example, so that the enemy, as they approach, realize that all they're going to get is death they're going to consider it would be more profitable to run away. He also writes that when a just militia enters enemy territory, the people know there that they are going to be protected. When they come through the outskirts of the city, it does not trample the crops, it does not loot the tombs, does not plunder the treasures. A just militia safeguards the lives of individual human beings many times over. Why would people not like that? So if I was going to try to condense what I've heard so far as a personal or martial family guideline, if you are acting judiciously, trying to serve the greater good, protect yourself or others from evil happening, imminent danger, then you're not only going to end up on the right side of the interpretation of violence, you're going to produce better fortune. You're going to gather support. What about a Christian view on violence? From the historical view, Christian violence has been executed for everything from freeing oppressed people to slaughtering people because they just simply were not believers. Non-believers present a potential threat in most historical references. However, in many cases, the modern approaches to the martial arts and Christianity are some of my favorite. When I'm working with a Christian-based practitioner, I usually begin with simply us making an agreement of what is the Constitution that I'm going to be working with. What is the belief? As I had alluded to in the beginning of this program, the most common principle I find that most Christian faith martial arts will agree on is something along these lines. I will not entice or escalate violence or anger. I will walk away if possible if it does not put myself or anyone else at greater risk of violence. I will act swiftly and with the force necessary to deter or subdue my enemy. That is a general guideline, but there's plenty of room to work in there. Of course, some folks may have a little tweak here or there, but I do believe it's important to try to have something that gives us a constitution that we can work under. 
It is also sometimes important to point out different Bible scripture. For example, I like the Greek version of Corinthians 16:13. Watch, be alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, and be strong. So one of my favorite resources in looking at Christianity and martial arts is also Grace Martial Arts. Mark McGee has helped during the research of several podcasts with some of his work. They support and write on their website, We believe that Christians have a right to defend themselves, their families, and people in danger. We see no law, principle, or suggestion in the Bible against Christians defending themselves or someone in danger. Which now brings us to Mr. Tim Larkin, who is an accomplished author and instructor in self-protection. He has authored several books, including When Violence is the Answer. He presented this topic in a seminar with his usual tagline, as he mentions, violence is seldom the answer. But when violence is the answer, it is the only answer. As we have heard from the historical references, violence is a tool. As Tim Larkin explains, for many expert criminals, violence is not just a tool, it's the currency that makes the exchanges. He has references of alpha predators that are inside the prison system. This is where you see asocial violence, where there's no negotiation, no discussion, no de-escalation. There's literally no communication. We're going to go to instant violence. And you might be on the cusp of being erased and may not even be aware of it. In the asocial setting, intense violence is the currency. Mr. Larkin does an excellent job sharing how good information comes from horrible parts of society. And these are people who cannot afford to be wrong about their tools and currencies and the currency of violence. If they're wrong about what they're doing, they're going to perish in a very brutal manner. Larkin, during his demonstration, shares a couple of well-known experts who are used to using the tool and the currency of violence and their similarities. A couple things. None of these experts of violence ever had combat sports or martial arts training. What they did have is a knowledge, particularly of anatomy, also of psychology, the mindsets, and intent, a pure intent. Larkin emphasizes something that you hear many times here from our agents of actions, the Ando Merswas, the Ian Abernathys, those folks out there who train in a very practical manner. Using a headbutt or a weapon of opportunity is not a criminal act or not an act of self-protection. It is an act of violence. After the fact, after the dust settles, that is what determines whether it was self-defense or not. So in the moment, it's just an act of violence. This will help you in many, many different ways. So for example, Larkin points out that many people struggle because they get caught up in the bigger, faster, stronger mindset. And this has little or nothing to do with the currency of violence. The masters of violence focus on similarities of a human being. For example, no matter how big and strong they are, getting punched in the throat is going to put you down. We like, in the Asian martial arts, like to use the example that the, the places that the noon shadows will fall are very vulnerable. 
So throat strikes, groin strikes, eye gouges are acts of violence that closes the gap between being bigger, stronger, or faster. Life-preserving and bodily harm self-protection is based on your ability to use the tool of violence. It is legal and is like learning to swim is the tool to keep you from drowning. Larkin emphasizes that if you keep the right mindset that a predator will give you an opportunity, and he gives you some examples of it. Your brain is the ultimate concealed carry, is what he likes to say. When you truly understand the tool of violence, you will not take the bait at the bar. You will avoid the road rage mess. You are not lured as easily by the temptation to just compete. The tool of violence is used when there is no choice, there is imminent bodily harm, and there is no exit. By understanding the tool of violence, you can actually lead a more peaceful life. If you'd like to hear more about Tim Larkin's work, he asked me to send you to Tim Larkin's Self-Protection at YouTube. That way you can find a lot of his presentations. In closing today, I'm going to share one of his challenges. When you see an act of violence on the TV or an act of violence on YouTube and you're watching it, many of us will watch it from a form of self-protection. Larkin encourages you to take a couple of weeks and watch these acts of violence from the victor's standpoint, not the victim's. Avoid learning to be the victim by watching their viewpoint all the time. I suggest you review Kung Fu Podcast 108 through 110, Ranking Violence in Three Dimensions. It's already available for all the patrons and members. We want to learn to skew the results toward us to be the one to survive and to be found to use the tool of violence most appropriately. Have a great practice today. Do your very best. Keep yourself safe and as well as your classmates where you're practicing these things. If you're not sure how to do that, I encourage you, look at some of the videos that Jason Club, Ando Merzwa, and Ian Abernathy put out. There's a lot of good stuff there, and they're great supporters of the program. If you have further questions or if you'd like to know how we do it, just send an email, kungfupodcast at gmail.com. I look forward to talking with you again real soon. The Stand Your Ground Law removes the duty of a law-abiding citizen to have to retreat from an act, I was going to say act, yeah from attacks or threats before you can use violent force.